we all come from sex. Like, nobody doesn't. And so there's this, like, really tragic internalized self-hatred that develops. Sex is bigger than sex. Something is happening here that is sacred and that is mysterious and that deserves a ritual context. That it isn't just procreation, that it isn't just pleasure, that it isn't just even ecstasy, that there's more to it. There's something mystic, there's something spiritual, there's something ritualized that can happen there. I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Sages. I'm so thrilled to welcome Eve Lady Apples Bradford back to the show. This is part two of our conversation, and we go a little deeper into this concept of the erotic basis of being. Eve talks about her work in depth sexology and as a linear carriage of the Mogadau tradition. She also sheds some historical light on how we arrived at our current state of sexual affairs. To be in conversation with Eve is always an intellectual tour de force, and I hope that you find this conversation as nourishing and enlightening as I did. Hi, Eve. Welcome back. (laughs) Thank you. So glad to be here. Um, So I'm back with Eve sitting in front of her fireplace in Santa Fe. So you might hear the crackle, which I think is very romantic and erotic apropos for this conversation. (laughs) And um, Eve, Eve gave a wonderful interview that got cut short and we're sort of just getting into the erotic. And Eve also recently certified as a Moga Dao sexolo- Taoist sexology teacher. What is the term, the title that you have? Depth sexuality. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you are and a teacher of? Yes. Mm-hmm. Certified teacher of depth sexuality. Yeah. Well, that seems like a great place to just dive right in. What the term depth sexuality, what does that mean to you and within this tradition? Yeah, so it's definitely intentionally linking itself to the notion of depth psychology. Um, And so in the way that, you know, when Jen was creating Mogadao, she was very steeped in Jungian archetypal psychology. And people like James Hillman have been a huge influence on her along with, you know, Taoist, traditional Taoist texts and also you know, Walt Whitman and Sappho and (laughs) there's a wide variety of influences. But Mm -hmm. um, so this notion of really like validating sexuality as a field of depth inquiry, depth work um, is really the intention behind that name. And this understanding that sexuality itself is this field as vast and intricate and integral to health as psychology. So that sexuality is not just the art of pleasure. It's not just um, orgasmic skill. You know, it's in fact this field that is foundational to notions of health, notions of well-being, notions of vitality. And also like on the personal individual scale and also on the social cultural scale. So that, that our relationship to our sexual energy and to, to sexual expression, sexual embodiment is 
integral to societal and cultural health as well as personal individual health. And so this field of depth sexuality intentionally engages and addresses all of that. So for someone who might not see what those connections are, what does my sexuality have to do with our society and how it functions? How might you expand on that relationality? Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to look at it. One in the most obvious, I mean, it's interesting in this moment, right? Harvey Weinstein just got, um, you know, uh, somewhat punished. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he actually was booked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so if we look at like this cultural moment, it's this moment where there's so much awareness around the brokenness of our shared sexuality and that, you know, one perspective on the wounding within our culture is that it is an Eros wound and that this approach to sexuality is a one approach to healing that wound that that there's not that our relationship culturally and individually um, to our sexuality is so broken from such a profound history of oppression and repression and vilification and misunderstanding and shaming and religious dogma and um generational accumulation of trauma and and wound around these issues that there's just a huge like dearth of health around sexuality. So that's like one very obvious thing. The maybe perhaps less obvious way in which personal relationship to sexuality and to our erotic nature Um, is implicated culturally and socially has to do with um, this understanding of the jing, of the post, of the the procreative energy, the sexual energy that is the foundation of qi and shen, of life force energy and cosmological energy that they're in fact all jing as it moves up through the body, up through the field of energy into the field of expression. Um, that the Jing, there's this understanding particular to post-Taoist philosophy that um, the Jing is pure potential. It's inviolable. And therefore it is not susceptible to manipulation, to exploitation, to conditioning, um, and even to trauma. That the way we understand it, there's a pathway that the Jing travels on its way to becoming Qi that we call the Jing Qi bridge that is damageable. That is what gets impacted by trauma, by conditioning, by exploitation. But the Jing itself is inviolable. And so when we engage in practices that connect us to our Jing and begin sourcing the energy that we're using to live on a day-to-day basis from the Jing, then that creates a certain inviolability in the self. And as the Jing Qi bridge gets healed, which most people in our culture at this time, as I was talking about with the Eros wound, have 
some damage, some trauma, some shatterment in their Jingqi bridge. As that becomes healed through practice, which, you know, we have specific practices that are for healing that, um, then, and as you become more connected to the Jing, as the Jing becomes more fluidly connected to the field of Qi, then there's a way in which our own sovereignty grows because we're sourcing energy and therefore embodiment and intelligence and intuition and sensitivity and power all are emerging from this inviolable source. And so that means that we're less susceptible to things like marketing and late stage capitalism, propaganda and cultural conditioning and ideas that don't actually originate from our own authentic source, which is the Zhang. So they, what I find personally and in observing people in these practices is that it's like those aspects of being don't have as much traction. They're not as sticky when you are really in intimate communication with the Zhang. And this has happened for myself, one really clear way that that's happened has been with my relationship to my body and body image, which is something that I've struggled with my whole life, as so many of us have. And it was one of those things that seemed sort of like impossible to actually address on a baseline level. Like I could tell myself that I accepted myself and loved myself a million times, but it didn't really feel true, actually, if I'm really honest about it until I started engaging in this work. And it's almost hard to explain how it's like almost hard to remember how it used to be mm. because it's just not like that anymore. And it's so foundational that it's, it's below the level of intellect. It's below the level of will. It's not something that I willed. It's like somehow these things that don't originate from my authentic truth just don't really stick anymore mm. because the source of my energy is my authenticity. And so anything that isn't my authenticity, like just kind of doesn't really have a grip. Including so, toxic thoughts about your own body and your own self. Definitely. Right. Profoundly so. And that's one example, but there's many. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and as you were talking, also less susceptible to our own cravings or our own how if we do not have a self, uh, a healthy or intact sexuality, how that manifests as we see with the Weinstein trials and so many others. And um, so that it's less susceptible, we could say, to the dark, uh, inauthentic side of human sexuality as well. Yeah. And I'll probably just say this in the intro, but I'm going to slip it in now, which is, you know, for for listeners who maybe are unfamiliar with these terms and this idea of Jing or maybe don't know how to engage with them or believe in them. At its core, what we're talking about is just your own body knowledge and your own desire and how that manifests in your body. And it's similar to intuition, right? And so I think you said in part one how it's just simply being in touch with the desire, but really 
an authentic, pure form of that that can also lead us to our destiny and make us, as you're saying, less susceptible to these traps. So totally. Thank you. Um, well, while we're on the topic, what if, if someone wants to practice with you, like what does it mean? What does it look like to what are the practices that help one restore that Jing Chi connection or in general terms, just connect deeply to their authentic sex? So as you might imagine, it's a many fold path. Mm -hmm. um, when there is acute trauma in the field or even maybe not even necessarily biographical trauma, but enough influence of what we sometimes call atmospheric trauma, which is like not something that happens specifically to you in your life, but the impact of, you know, having a president that talks about grabbing women by the pussy, for example, um, if that can also result in shatterment of the Jingqi bridge, it doesn't have to be acute biographical trauma. So, but if there's, you know, if we, like, if I'm working with someone and it, it's clear, or if someone is clear that there's that level of foundational work to do, then we begin with a Qigong set called Three Pillars Qigong for Anxiety and Trauma that is a really beautiful set of 15 Qigong forms organized into three sets that are for like extremely acute trauma, and then that's called parasympathesis and then neurogenesis, which is like beginning the healing process and then reintegration, which is like when you're ready to kind of like actually integrate back into risking desire again. And before you get into other forms for someone just tuning into the conversation, what is Qigong? <laughs> <laughs> well, Qigong is an ancient Taoist energy practice. It's a moving meditation. It's a medicine, medical form, as well as Moga Dao Qigong in particular, this lineage that I work inside of is also a mythopoetic and a psycho-spiritual Qigong, which is one of the things that kind of makes it distinct from most other lineages. Um, there's some conjecture among us that, that most likely this is actually true of the root of Qigong, though we don't know it for sure. But we do know that under Mao in the Cultural Re Revolution in China, that anything dubbed superstition, which was basically anything spiritual or mystical, was criminalized and stripped from the culture. So it's it seems likely that that is when the the kind of deep spiritual mysticism that is clearly inherent in Qigong was stripped from it and it became the kind of like calisthenic medical Qigong that is most common in the U.S. and in China today. So this is Qigong that, you know, one way of seeing it is that it has been reunited with its authentic shamanic root as a mystical practice. Um, but it is also medical. It's working on the organs based on five element kind of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine theory. Um, but at its heart, it's a, it's a moving meditation and healing practice. Beautiful. And so you start with, there's a trauma series for acute trauma for right. the shatterment of what we call the Jing Chi bridge, but also our connection to our, our authentic sexuality. Exactly. And then there are other forms. And so then once that initial healing work has been done to create, basically what that form does is it it gets 
us to a place where we have an embodied understanding that the body is a safe place to be because so much trauma makes us leave the body and it's very hard to do deeper work with your sexuality when you have a hard time staying in your body. So for people who have a hard time staying in their body, this is where we start. And this form really, it's profound how effective it is in that, um, in terms of helping people stay in their body and begin to develop the internal neurological, um, psycho-spiritual resources to be able to navigate the general normal risks of life, which when you're deeply traumatized will just re-traumatize you. So, you know, you get back with this form, you get to the point where you're ready to engage with desire, to engage with the risks of disappointment and of hurt, you know, of pain that go along with risk of desire you know, that, that are a part of life that when you're deeply traumatized, feel like too much, Mm. feel like you just can't even go there. Right. So this first form is to get you to the point where you're like ready for that Mm. and ready for the non-disappointment, the ecstasy (laughs) and the pleasure and the joy also. Um, but with an understanding that that's, that's what you kind of sign up for when you, when you enter into the states of vulnerability that are necessary to engage with authentic sexuality. And so that's three pillars. Then you actually emerge into the field of depth sexuality work proper. Um, And there are multifaceted approaches to that. So that all really work together. So the foundational practice is something we call Jing retrieval, which is a, seated, usually seated breathing meditation, working with the Huiyin gate, which is um, the pubococcygeal muscle complex, sometimes called the perineum, like sometimes understood as the muscles used to do a Kegel, though there's a slight difference in what you're actually doing with the musculature, but it's, it's a familiar musculature to people that are at all familiar with sexual practice. So go so once once you've evolved past the trauma series and gotten to a state when you're ready to engage, uh, now you're in the realm of depth sexology. Right. So basically, we're working on lifting the jing into the field of qi and beginning to and so basically connecting to authentic desire and allowing it to move up into the body, into expression, into not only sexual expression, but also creative expression, also the vitality, life force, uh, vibrancy. And so there's a meditation practice called Jing Retrieval that works with breathing and with um, the musculature of the sexual anatomy in time with breathing. There's something called erotogenic yoga, which there's a real understanding in this work of the importance of blood flow and what a role blood flow plays both biophysically and psychologically Mm. in terms of, you know, notions that male anatomy people work with in terms of so-called impotency, so-called premature ejaculation, um, 
blood flow plays a huge role in that as well as with female anatomy people in terms of arousal patterns, accessibility of arousal, lubrication, all of these like foundational sexual issues. And so erotogenic yoga is this amazing program that works with that and is not itself a sexual practice, but it's, it's like training for sexuality. Um, and it's, a really beautiful practice. And then there are sexuality Qigong forms, two different ones. One, the Eros bridge form that's for bridging into and out of intense sexuality, for working with sexual trauma, for really just connecting to your erotic sensual body. The form itself is not explicitly sexual, but it engages and sort of builds our relationship with our sexuality. And then there's the epicene form, which is a Qigong form that itself can be an intensely sexual practice with arousal as a part of it. Um, though again, there's a spectrum of how you can practice it. And then in addition to that, there's the depth sexuality massage protocols for both male and female anatomies, which also are incredible for just general health of the sexual anatomy, blood flow, tissue health, um, making contact with your like sexual nature with no pressure for performance, no pressure for arousal. It's really just about building the relationship. Um, and all of these practices exist on a spectrum from therapeutic to ecstatic and, and can be practiced kind of anywhere on that spectrum, depending on your needs on any given day, in any given moment. Thank you. As as a student of this tradition myself, I want to say what you just said about um, the engagement that it can span the spectrum and any of the practices can, and that a lot it's practice. And I'll say that my own engagement with this work, without even without even buying into the philosophy or the energetics of the Jing Chi bridge. I think there's something really powerful about doing in some ways, any practice though, this tradition is quite potent and has a lot of layers to it, um, to spending that time with yourself in a way that is not goal oriented and, um, you know, about learning and toning the body and that, I think for listeners, you know, I don't, there's so many people listening to the show with their own different stories, but something that I think a lot of people and perhaps a lot of women can relate to is um, performance anxiety, including with yourself, with your own self-pleasure practice. And so um, getting to intimately start to spend time down there as like a granny would say, um, and, you know, intimately starting to spend time with the energetics of your sex and with these physical, the massage and the yoga and just starting with blood flow, um, has been a really great gateway for me into then the practice of self-pleasure and the expansion available there. Yeah. I, it's so important. The, the lack of pressure to perform is so crucial for sexual health to allow yourself in. I mean, when do we ever find ourselves in a context where we are engaging sexually without some pressure? It doesn't really happen. And so when you first enter into that space with yourself and you kind of realize the spaciousness that exists around like 
there's no pressure for me to even get turned on. Like I'm just, this is self-care, right? You know, this is making contact with this part of myself that it's so easy to feel so far from Mm -hmm. in life for any wide variety of reasons, be it trauma, be it insecurity, be it stress, be it, you know, challenges in your life outside of your sexuality that just keep you from being able to feel sexual at all. And that's the amazing thing about, in particular, the massage protocols, which are very specific to this lineage um, and come from, you know, decades of exploration um, by our teacher, Jen. Um, They are so nurturing you know, it's like this incredible way to love yourself where like just to engage with your sexual anatomy in this loving way where there's no expectation of it to do anything or to like get anywhere other than where it is. And in fact, what you're doing is like just nurturing its health. It's such a different way of relating to our sexual body, mm-hmm. you know, and it our sexual body requires loving care, you know? And then what you realize is that when you engage in this way, when the, when arousal feels really far away, that's actually the place that builds pleasure potential more strongly than anything else. Because what you notice is like, it gets closer. Right. You know, when, especially when you engage in a way where it's like, it's fine if it doesn't, get closer. Totally. Then it actually just starts to happen because of that openness and that lack of pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it speaks to that horribly oppressive history that we are all climbing our way out of right now, that self-care in that region would not be a given and a granted, right? Like we have phys ed, we're dealing every other part of our body's got a specialist and a thing. And we're like, yeah, I got to do my foot reflexology. And now I got to. So I'm wondering for you personally, well, uh, we heard, we heard about your, your upbringing a bit in the first part of this conversation. I don't know that Eve at Andover would look forward (laughs) a couple of decades and see, oh yeah, I'm going to end up a depth sexologist. Um, I would love to know at what point you started to think about sex as an ology and with depth behind it. Um, whether that is something that emerged from your encounter with Mogadau or prior and, you know, if you could just speak more about the influences to that and how you think about that also beyond this tradition that we're talking about. You know, it's funny, actually, I think the Eve at Andover wouldn't have been a bit surprised. <laughs> um, when I was five years old, I asked my mother if I could watch her have sex. So. Wow. Yeah. What'd she say? Uh, no. <laughs> Um, but to her great credit, she did not shame me for asking. She, she honored that it was a reasonable thing to ask, you know, that, that there was nothing wrong with me for asking that of her, which Mm. I have great reverence and respect for that. Mm. Um, do you remember that time? What was... Oh yeah. I mean, I was fascinated by sex from a very young age. 
Um, and that has never changed really. Um, and when I was young, kind of a, I mean, all the way through my childhood and my teenage years, I had like more sexual energy than I knew what to do with. And it was hard because I was also like struggling with body image and was kind of bigger and not seen as conventionally attractive in my very like, you know, white, skinny, blonde lacrosse player high school. Um, so it was hard because I had all this sexual energy and not a lot of like outlets and to did explore you, it. Did you identify it as sexual energy? Yes, yeah. totally. Mm -hmm. And I was really attracted to women from a young age and didn't really know what to do with that also. And I mean, I was kind of attracted to everybody, truth be told. Um, and I just wanted to be so much more sexual than I had the opportunity to be. You know, I always masturbated, but I also like wanted more and I wasn't necessarily being given access to more. And that was really challenging as a young person. Um, and sometimes it led to me making some kind of less than super great choices for myself in order to be able to explore sexuality. Sometimes I would make choices to do that with people that maybe weren't the best partners for me um, because I was so interested in what was happening, you know, that I would make compromises. And so there's a way in which it has always felt to me like sexuality had something to do with what I was up to. Um, I've had a connection to this sort of like, you know, priestess whore archetype since I was very young hmm. and had no idea what to do with it. Anywhere that I saw sort of like quote unquote sacred sexuality being wrapped in the world, I was pretty turned off by. Um, it either seemed cheesy or sketchy or super heteronormative. And none of those things like interest me at all. And so I was sort of walking around with this like archetype, like banging around inside my skull, not knowing what to do with it. And I remember like having conversations with my aunt who has always been sort of this like mentor guide in my life. She like got me my first tarot deck when I was eight, you know, and she's kind of been that person in my life. And I remember I was in a relationship in my twenties and I remember having a conversation with her where I was like, just grappling with the fact that there was like some part of me that knew that this was not the only way that I was meant to engage with sexuality, like in a one-on-one -on -one intimate relationship that there was like more to it, but I didn't know what that was. And I didn't know how to locate it and how to explore that. And, you know, I did some reading and I like, but I just, I think part of me just maybe was waiting because in my life, that's how it's kind of gone is like when it's time for something, it shows up, you know, and I'm pretty proactive about things, but I also like am attuned to how things arise, you know? And so when I came upon the work of Mogadau and, and Jen as a trans female hermaphroditic sexuality teacher, there was something about her and her archetype and her being 
that I immediately was like, okay, this is someone I can learn from actually, because I was always so confined by the gender norms within sexuality. They just have never rung true to me. It never made sense to me that someone's gender would be the thing that determined whether or not I was attracted to them in a really fundamental way. And my partners have been the full spectrum of the, of gender. Um, and I love that. Like it, it really honestly makes no sense to me why you would only ever be with one kind of person. And I know that that's not true for everyone. And I, the no part of me thinks it should be, but it's very true for me personally. And so there was something about someone who had lived as a cisgendered man for the better part of their adult life and then gone through this transition and was hormonally intersex. So had this understanding of arousal patterns of both male and female so-called people and was able to translate across those borderlands in a way that was so perceptive and so intelligent and nuanced and subtle that suddenly I felt like I came into a place where my sexuality was actually allowed to be itself and to not be trying to get categorized and restricted and turned into like some kind of like men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of nonsense, which like never made sense to me. And so then, you know, and I've done a lot of ritual work. I've done a lot of ceremonial work. I've facilitated a huge range of individual and group ritual work. And it always felt erotic to me. So this notion, this phrase that Jen uses, the erotic basis of being, that was the phrase that got me here. I saw an ad online for a workshop and all I saw was the phrase, the erotic basis of being. I didn't know anything about her work. I didn't know anything about who she was as a person, but I saw that phrase and it spoke deeply to me because I was like, okay, somebody is thinking about sexuality in a way that is more expansive than anything I've seen. And so that phrase is really foundational to, to what's happening here for me, which is this understanding that sex is everything and that it's also like the sex act is not the point. And, you know, I teach this class now called Reclaiming Eros, Sex with Self, Sex with God. And it's been this incredibly beautiful journey of coming into relationship with this archetype that I have sort of been grappling with my whole life of like what it really is to be a mystic in the modern world who is fully engaged with their sexual energy in a way that is healthy, that is feeding vitality, that is feeding inspiration, that's feeding sovereignty, that's feeding sensitivity and power and ability to harmonize. You know, all of that actually comes from sex. And when sex gets integrated into the whole in a healthy way, then yes, there's extraordinary potential for like insane ecstatic experience 
for sure. That's awesome, you know, and it's hugely contributing to vitality and joy and life force. But it's also actually not totally the point for me. It's like a bonus, right? The point is what happens when you come into a healthy relationship with your sensual body and your erotic nature and your sexual capacity as a person in every aspect of your life gets influenced by that. And that's what I'm really interested in is that is the healing of the interconnectedness of all of it so that sexuality gets healthily integrated into everything, which is where it belongs, as opposed to like shut off in a corner of the bedroom or the Mm. closet or the strip club, you know? Mm. All right. So everybody pause and go sign up for that class, Reclaiming Eros. Um, Gosh, there's so much I want to ask you. Let's start with we're going to loop back to five-year-old Eve at some point. <laughs> I have more fill in the blank between then and now. But as you're, as you're speaking about this idea of, you know, sex in the corner of the bedroom, which is probably where most people think it belongs. Um, and because I know that you're a brilliant academic as well. Can you, why, how did we get here? What are the many influences when you reflect on um, how it, how we got stuck in this corner in our culture. Oh yeah. You want me to get you a drink (laughs) for that one? (laughs) It's so big and like kind of heartbreaking, you know, because like it didn't have to be this way, you know, and it just, it makes me so sad, but it's a complex combination of basically the intersection of the historical development of capitalism and religion and those two forces working together to demonize sexuality and in particular female sexuality and female power, which by disempowering female sexuality and female power, you equally disempower male sexuality and male power because they actually aren't separate. And so while it might seem on one hand that, you know, men got away with it and women didn't, it's actually not true at all. Everybody suffered. Everybody's broken. Everybody's sexuality is compromised because of that wound. And There's a book that you borrowed from me once that I can't recommend highly enough, which is called Caliban and the Witch, which is a brilliant kind of historical survey of the intersection between the development of capitalism and specifically kind of the burning times in Europe is what it focuses on. But it really makes clear this intersection of the insidiousness of of commerce and capitalism and market-based economy with religious dogma and particularly Christian notions of um, sin and the body as separate from the spirit and women as, you know, base 
more base creatures who are more at the whim of sexual, sensual urges, closer to the earth, closer to the body, closer to the devil, and men as creatures who are further from those things and closer to the intellect and closer to the pure spirit and closer to God. And how that separation and the devaluation of women and women's work and women's way of being was essential to capitalism. Um, and it's, it's a very illuminating survey. How was it in service of capitalism? Okay, so <laughs> basically... I've tried to have this conversation with my mother, who I know you're listening. So now we're going to the, the okay, source because so I failed. Basically, as I understand it, before um, a cash-based economy, there was a much more equal valuing of labor. So everybody was just working to make life happen. Men were working the land, women were tending the home, raising the children, and it was all equally important because it was all making life possible. When the system shifted and instead of people working land in exchange for the fruits of the land, property was privatized and people were made to work land that they didn't own in order to be paid money in order to buy the things that they needed, then this division began to exist between work that was paid and work that was not paid, which was basically men being paid for their labor and women not being paid for their labor. They were just raising the children and tending the home, which was necessary, but it, it wasn't paid. And so that was where the kind of the division began. And that was the roots of capitalism and the roots of a market-based economy were, were in that shift away from labor to money. Then at the same time, and this is where things get complex and where this might be like a deeper critique than we really have time and space for here. But basically, the devaluation of women was also necessary. Like it didn't just sort of happen organically. It was necessary to control certain aspects of the population who were not down for this, you know, who and and women in particular who were not down for this. And so there was this kind of really top-down, I mean, what eventually became a massacre, but it started gradually, um, of women as, like, there were all these insidious ways to, to devalue and to undermine the inherent intelligence and value of women that created the kind of schism that was necessary in order to make capitalism work. Because as long as women were as powerful as men, like that arrangement wasn't going to fly. And again, this book like breaks it down really well. There's also another book called Women and Nature, The Roaring Inside Her by Susan, Susan Griffith. That's profound and amazing. And 
um, it's like a book length prose poem, but it's also meticulously researched. And there's this section in the, in the first section of the book where it, it lists all these dates that are interwoven. Like it's the same period of time in Europe that it'll be like, you know, this day, I think it's like the, it's from like the 13 through the 1500s. And it's all these overlapping dates of the scientific revolution and the burning times mm. and how they utterly are interwoven with this separation of spirit and matter and the separation into like, um, you know, the kind of Cartesian, like Galileo, uh, like these early scientific thought pioneers who created everything into like a system that could be understood and quantified was happening at the same time that women were being vilified for having traditional knowledge and for contradicting those ways of being and were in fact like, you know, burned by the thousands. And so all of that is to say there was this inextricable association of women with sexuality that was created by the church. And this, particularly because, you know, priests were celibate, right? So they couldn't have sex. So there's this vilification of sexuality that happens meticulously over generations where Yeah, I mean, it's so sick, you know, because it's like we all come from sex, like nobody doesn't. And so there's this like really tragic internalized self-hatred that develops because every one of us comes from sex. And so when sex gets vilified, then, you know, this concept of original sin that like we start out bad right? And our whole life is like trying to make up for that. And part of why that's so useful is if you think about systems of control and manipulation on a cultural societal level, if people believe that they're somehow flawed, then they're, they start out divorced from their sovereignty. They start out disempowered automatically. And especially with the church, if the church is the one that can help them save themselves from their inherently like sinful nature, then it sets up this very effective power dynamic where people are beholden to the church to try to like get their asses into heaven and save themselves from the internal damnation that they are bound for simply because they come from sex. Right. And so it becomes this very effective method of control. And, and then, you know, moving onwards, if, if there's this association of women with sex, then there's this lack of powerful cohesion within the familial unit, particularly when we're talking about people who are working poor, that it undermines the 
the potential of people to unite against these systems of control when there's these internalized divisions and associations where it's like you're keeping yourself at a distance from someone because they're closer to the devil than you are, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And for those of us, I mean, for those of us who don't come from the church, right, it's irrelevant because we're all in this complete aftermath that has also become quite globalized. Absolutely. I mean, even if you have no affiliation with any kind of religious dogma, you're in it. It pervades our entire culture. And so do you have a sense of times before that uh, cultural phenomenon occurred, whether there were moments of history when... Um, I mean, as I ask this question, and I want to also hear, like, what is a sexually healthy society look like in your fantasy of utopia? And are there moments in history where the sexuality was um, when we were in right relation with it? I mean, it's, European history. Yeah, it's hard to say with any kind of like actual certainty in a way, certainly healthier, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, and it tends to be kind of. You know, there's, it's complex, you know, I mean, if you look from what I understand, like in ancient Egypt, there weren't really stigmas around incest. There weren't really stigmas around, um, you know, men and women both like shaved their heads and went naked wearing only like perfume and jewelry and wigs, you know, I mean, so there have been these times of like much more freedom around sexual expression to know what it really felt like to live inside of these cultures is Mm -hmm. trickier. I mean, there were also like huge amounts of slaves in ancient Egypt. So it's like, it's not like there's some soft lit utopia, you know, but, um, certainly pre-Christianity, certainly pre-industrialization, certainly pre-imperial, uh, takeover, there was less of a, or rather than phrasing it, there was more of a reverence for women, for sexuality as part of life. I mean, from everything I understand from researching pre-Christian Europe, that was definitely more present there. It's not like everything was perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly um, if you basically, if you go into most cultures before Christianity showed up and before imperial culture showed up, things are much more interesting, much healthier, it doesn't mean there aren't still some strange gender dynamics at play for sure. It doesn't mean there aren't some strange social hierarchies at play. You know, I don't want to over romanticize it, but certainly healthier. Yeah. So there's two questions I want to ask you. I'm going to ask them both on record here and then you can either answer one or both. We'll see how long your answers are. I want to be mindful of your time. Um, One I want to ask, I would love for you to tell us about Mary Magdalene. Mm. I see. I know she's come up in our private conversations and um, is a mystery to me. And I think a lot of people as in regards to this topic. Um, I would also love to hear 
how you personally in learning this history and let's say before you came into this work with, with Mogadah, which we've heard so much about, like how, how did these, how did the, how did these histories play into your personal life and how have you worked to, um, evolve beyond them? They're definitely connected those questions. Um, Magdalene is this very sort of shrouded historical figure in terms of any kind of like factual surety. There's lots of conjecture. There's lots of stories, most of which I've read at this point, um, about different ideas about her life and who she really was and what really went down. And, um, and I think more important than any kind of like historical accuracy is this clear necessity for the archetype and how interesting it is that the archetype that has presented itself as the female counterpart of the most influential male spiritual figure in recent history, not so recent history, you know, um, um, Christ, maybe, not Obama, guys. Right, <laughs> Christ, and and you know he's in an elite club, maybe with like Buddha and uh, Muhammad, um, Moses. You know, they they there's a gang, but he's right up there for sure. And um, how interesting it is that that the archetype that really presents itself is of the priestess whore, you know, and that that's such a part of her archetype that sexuality is this necessity in that field somehow. And obviously there's a lot of contention around this, particularly when you look at narratives around the early Christians and the way that the church got formed after the crucifixion you know, and again, there's like, whether you believe it was historical or not, like if you go into the archetype of the story and different versions of how it went down and how Magdalene was kind of invalidated or made lesser than when in many of the narratives, there's a lot of, uh, pretty clear indications that she was an equal to Christ and was a healer and a mystic and a leader in her own right. Um, and, and so I think she holds this mystique for a lot of people, a lot of women in particular who don't have an identifying archetype in that story. Right. And, and so she's become this kind of like beacon of what that might be, you know, of what, like where we fit into the story, you know, not just as like the virgin or the acolyte, you know, but as like a fully empowered 
uh, figure of spiritual depth and potency in her own right, you know, and, and the fact that there's this thread of the, of the sexual priestess in her archetype is, you know, of extreme significance. And so one of the ways that I've heard her story told is through this notion of being able, like making a spiritual practice out of being able to find the beloved, the sacred beloved in any human and serving that as an embodiment of the deity of the divine principle. Um, and that being a role of the sacred prostitute, the sacred whore, the sexual priestess. And the notion of sexual rights as a part of the religious mysteries, as a part of the spiritual mysteries. And why would that be? You know, what's that about? The certainly ancient fertility rights involve these embodiments of divine principles in human form as a way of reenacting creation stories, reenacting fertility rites, reenacting the like, you know, in many different cultures, in all different traditions, there's an annual like revivification of the world, a reenactment of the creation story, a bringing back to life of the world in some form. Um, this is across cultures. And, and so I think there's something about her that holds this potential for those of us who have a felt sense that there's more to sex than sex. But we look around and it's like hard to find any teaching or any evidence or any like way to follow that thread. You know, it's really hard. And, and somehow, you know, she has become this kind of beacon of that, I feel like for many of us, you know, as like, okay, we're not crazy. We can feel that sex is bigger than sex, that something is happening here that is sacred and that is mysterious and that deserves a ritual context, that it isn't just procreation, that it isn't just pleasure, that it isn't just even ecstasy, that there's more to it. There's something mystic. There's something spiritual. There's something ritualized that can happen there. And, and so again, you know, for me personally, that's what drew me to her was this felt sense of like, I don't even know how to explain what I'm feeling. I just have this knowing that there's more to this. And I even at times have gotten myself into situations where I was sort of playing out stories of hers without realizing it because something in me was like needed to find this, like some pretty questionable things, you know, like engaging with total strangers in semi-public situations, like almost as if I was in a trance, you know, and because 
there was like something that my my soul was driving towards that I didn't understand and that I didn't have any mentorship in. And and so I think there's this necessity to bring this kind of like what to me I've come to understand as like ritual transgression into the field as a way of reclaiming power from these oppressive ideologies and dogmas that have so like disrespected our power in these areas for so long that it feels like there's this real necessity to reclaim that in some way that is undeniable Mm. and that that takes power back in this way that says, no, your rules do not apply to me. Actually, I am not held within the framing of my sex or my gender or my capacity or my spiritual potency. Like, no, actually. And so I think it's from that place that, that we begin to reach towards these archetypes that are both spiritual and mystical and even religious and are also sexual and transgressive and um, unacceptable in a certain way. Mm. Well, ending on ritualized transgression seems like (laughs) a really good idea. I just wanted to ask what age did you encounter Mary Magdalene? Oh, I think my first real like experience of her as like somebody that was a part of me was probably in my early twenties, mid twenties. Um, I, again, a book, um, the moon under her feet was kind of the first like Magdalene narrative that found its way into my world. And it's an amazing book. I've read it many times and there's many others, but that was the first one by Callista Kinstler, Mm -hmm. um, that, really sort of started me kind mm. of noticing that. And the other ones that I really recommend is are called the Maeve Chronicles. It's a four book series. It's a big commitment. They're big books, mm-hmm. but they're so good. The first one's called Magdalene Rising and it takes, it's four books and it takes you through her entire life and they're profound, really, really amazing books. Great. Well, we will um, attach a reading list to this episode for sure. (laughs) And perhaps in a few months we can do a part three and get deeper into now we've gotten so, so big with these ideas and how they played out personally. Because I think that that will be a really inspiring and enriching narrative for listeners as well. So thanks so much for, again, sharing yourself with us. And um, it's always an honor to be in conversation with you. Thank you. So mutual. (laughs) If this episode turned you on, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It makes a huge difference. Then head to strippersandsages.com to learn more about our guests, sign up for our mailing list, access special resources, and become a Patreon supporter, which would be very sexy of you. Special thanks to Ben Euphrat for scoring and mixing these episodes, and to Lilia Tam and John Wolfstone for their production support. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs>